Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So when my uh, brother was in middle school, and I was in the first year of high school. I used to babysit him when we both together came home from school and my parents were still at work. This was not a recipe for familial equilibrium. Uh, You might not be able to imagine this, but I was not always as nice as I am now. Uh, And I was bigger than he was. Now he's massive. He's like a walking muscular callus. He's a cop. You don't want to don't want to get in a bar fight with this dude, right? He could really do some damage. But uh, but I was bigger than him and older than him, and I would bark orders at him and expect him simply to comply out of the goodness of his heart and the strength of my you know formidable nature. And uh, and at one point uh, he said to me, Ethan, look, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. And I said, Eric. I'm older than you, and I'm bigger you, bigger than you, so I kind of am the boss of you. And Eric, who is not like bookish, but really street smart, said, huh, well, you might be the boss of me, but dad is the boss of you. And when boss of you gets home, you're dead. <laughs> I, I didn't die, though. I, but it, I came close. I came close. Uh, but I liked the control. I did. I liked the power, you know? I know I'm alone, but I like the power. Uh, I, think, I think sometimes that's the human condition. I think we lust after authority. We like the ability to alter the emotional temperature of a room. We like the power of what our eyes can communicate. We like shutting people up. We like maybe helping out people that agree with us while putting away those who don't. You know, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the news from the Ukraine and all of the things that uh, Putin has in some ways organized. There are a lot of innocent people that are suffering terribly. Uh, I'm thinking also you know, about different political movements. I'm thinking about the squad right now. You know the squad, like with Cortez and all the ladies? And they, what do they want to do? They want power to move the, the Democratic Party in a, in a left direction. But I, I'm also thinking about Tucker, you know? Think about Tucker with, his, uh, with his, his look of, like, contained rage and confusion, right? <laughs> you know, and, he, and he wants to be number one in his time slot. I get it. You know, and he wants to stir people up a little. You know, I get it. A little power. I'm thinking about your department. I know there's there's probably somebody in your department or in its history that likes that wanted to sway it in one direction or another had the best ideas of how this thing is going to be saved, and if you don't have somebody in your department who's like that, it's because it's you, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, 
You know, or maybe it's a sibling. I mean, you have one of your siblings is vying to be power of attorney. I mean, one of them is. One of them wants the lion's share of the estate. One of them wants to inherit the house. One of them's gonna like take care of mom and dad when they're, you know, fading because, you know, they get, they make bank, you know. I mean, nobody's that crass in their minds, clearly, but sometimes that happens in movies. Um, you know, but some, so people love authority. They love power. But other people hate it. They hate authority. Why? Because they've been ruined by people who have authority. They've been abused and manipulated, and they don't want anything to do with it. And they're suspicious of any leader who has any degree of power. They assume the worst about that person because they've been so harmed in the past. Uh, Well, Palm Sunday is all about power. It's all about authority. It's all about kingship. And it's all about the man who was the locus of true authority. And Paul, in the second chapter of his letter to the Philippians, unpacks what true authority means. I want to talk about that tonight. I want to talk about true authority so that we understand what it's about and might succumb to it. I think it'll help us. Yeah. So uh, for Jesus, Paul began to understand that for Jesus, the authority involved two, deg- two different ingredients. Authority meant to embrace disgrace and to experience elevation. That's what Philippians 2 is about. It's a text roughly cut in half. The first portion is about embracing disgrace. The second portion is about experiencing elevation. And so I wish to speak about those two things this evening. In verses 6 through 8, we read a text about the Lord embracing disgrace, that that was core, his messiahship that at least from the perspective of the world, how he was regarded by that world was disgrace. They thought of him as a disgrace. And this is what uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says. He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This section is about disgrace. That's its emphasis, but I have to mention to you that the text doesn't begin with disgrace. It begins in a timeless place, in a safe place, outside of disgrace. Uh, Notice the text makes the boldest possible claim about Jesus of Nazareth, the Mediterranean peasant, the wandering prophetic rabbi. It says that he was in the form of God and equal to God. Now, if you go home tonight, really, tonight, I think it's on, and you turn on the History Channel, if they're not trying to explain how the pyramids were built by aliens, um, they will have a show about Jesus. And they will have interviewed John Dominic Crossan, who is a skeptical New Testament scholar from Ireland. And he has the sweetest voice in the world. And what John Dominic Crossan will say to you in a convincing Irish brogue is something like this. You know the whole notion of Jesus' divinity? It didn't even find its origin until the third century after Constantine. Before that, Jesus was simply a a nice little peasant boy. But unfortunately, due to myth and drama, he was elevated to the point of godhood. Can you believe how sad that is? How much offense he would have taken at such a position? Well, just to clarify the matter... Um, it's not a third century invention. Let me read it again. Huh. 
He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Belief in Jesus' divinity, assertion of Jesus' divinity, is, is this is from A.D. 50. That's like before the 4th century. Like, this was written before the four Gospels were written. This is one of the earliest texts of Christianity. It was already a decided matter that Jesus was the embodiment of Yahweh. And Paul can clearly speak about it. In fact, this whole passage is a poem or a hymn that Paul is likely citing from another established source. So it's even earlier than Paul. This is established fact, much to the chagrin of my Irish friend, of whom I did a remarkable impression. Now, (laughs) Paul says, Paul says that this Christ, who was in the form of God and equal to God, did something shocking. He does two injurious things to himself. First, he emptied himself. Second, he humbled himself. What what does this mean? And why would he have done this to himself? Why would he almost seek out his own injury? If you want to be the team captain, if you want to be the hero, you want to be the lead, you don't do that. You stake out your strength. You protect the strength that you have. You, You don't permit battery, right? So what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, the Greek word is kenosis, or kano'o, and, um, and it was a word that was used all the time in Koine Greek. In fact, Epicurus, the philosopher, once used the word kenosis to describe the waning of a moon, how a moon would get thinner and thinner uh, in the sky. And, uh, and that's what Christ did, in a way. What does it mean that he emptied himself? What did Christ empty himself of? Uh, well, he emptied himself, it seems, from the immediate grasp or the immediate use of certain divine prerogatives. When you think of God and God's essence, you might, if you've been a Christian for a while and know some theology, you might think of the omnis, right? That God is omniscient, meaning all-knowing, knows everything at all times. And yet Jesus, who knows a lot, doesn't know everything. Luke's gospel says he learns things. He also doesn't know the date of his second coming. Only the Father knows that. So he's limited in some forms of knowledge. But also uh, omnipresence. That means the God who is everywhere, uh, who is here and even in faraway places like Michigan. Um, He's in Michigan too. It's hard to believe. I've been there. I'm just kidding, Sarah Mitchell, wherever you are. I love Michigan. Um, uh, but, But Jesus was not the Mormon Jesus who was, you know, in Judea, but also in, you know, wherever the Mormon Jesus was. No, Jesus had a zip code, and that's the only place where he was. He was there in Judea and in nowhere else, limited by time, space, language, nationality, etc. Also, immutability. That's God's changelessness. I, the Lord, do not change. And yet, here we have the divine attaching to a ever-changing human body, right? A body that grows, that, that learns, that gets sick, that gets healthy, that you know, develops over time, that a body that is taken to birthday parties and funerals, but he's a physical being who changes over time. So Jesus becomes for us the one who empties himself. He does this on purpose. He empties himself so that he can fully share in the human experience. 
And we have a Christ who does more than empty himself in this way. He humbles himself. And he humbles himself in the most crass way. He becomes not only a servant, but a servant who dies. That's the big theme in Isaiah, by the way. Isaiah describes the future Messiah as not a suffering president, but a suffering servant. Somebody who's like a slave. Somebody who's at the, you know, the bottom rung of the social caste. It'll be that man, that suffering servant, Isaiah, the prophet, prophesies that will save us all. And Jesus knew in his gut that this was his vocation. He was going to be that man. He was going to be the suffering servant. And so this king would not ride a horse into battle, but ride a donkey toward a cross. He volunteers for annihilation. He volunteers for rejection. He accepts the disgrace that we place upon him. You know, Jesus heard a lot of no's in his life. No. John the Baptist at one point said, you're not angry enough. You know, the Pharisees, you're not pure enough. The Romans, you're not compliant enough. The Sadducees, you're not loyal enough. The Zealots, you're not violent enough. And the crowds after Palm Sunday, you're just not Christly enough. We just expected more from you, you know. We had a certain model. We had David. Killed a lot of people. You're not, you're not our Spartacus, man. Like, we thought you would, like, tangibly make our lives better. And here you are in the temple making scenes, criticizing the hierarchy, making us uncomfortable. Like, your attitude is worse now than it used to be. You used to tell stories about seeds and gardens. And now you're attacking people. And you're saying our temple's going to be torn down? What is with you? You know, maybe it's time we change our minds. Maybe it's time that we say no. Like everybody else said no to you. That's what the crowds are thinking. And then eventually they do. They think to themselves, you know, maybe it's time you bleed out. Because that way we don't have to deal with you. And we can move on. We don't need a complicated Messiah. We have expectations. And you didn't meet them. And so he empties himself. And he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He accepts the derision of humankind upon his own person. Why would he do this? Well, Paul writes that he empties himself and humbles himself to show that Jesus's disgrace is not accidental, but deliberate. It's deliberate. You know, my life and maybe yours, I'm guessing yours, is one massive pushback against potential pain and disgrace. We often wish to protect our reputations. When we hear gossip that sullies our reputation, we want to speak to everybody who's heard that gossip and write the story. I don't want social damage. Neither do you. Uh, But what's fascinating about Jesus is that he walks toward the pain, you know? He walks toward the people who will make out of his life a disgrace. Now, that kind of authority, Jesus' self his his self-propelled destruction makes many people uncomfortable. Many people wish to dodge that. They don't like the fact that Jesus saw his life as tethered to the cross, as a pathway to the cross. There's a very funny scene in The Great Divorce, which is a novella by C.S. Lewis, in which a a troop of uh, citizens from hell come to heaven just to tour the place, and they meet some spirits from heaven, and some of whom they knew in in their earthly life. 
And anyway, it's really funny. There's this Anglican bishop in hell, uh, and he comes to heaven to speak to his buddy who's, who's there, and he's describing a little theological society in hell. He founded a theological society in hell. I think that's funny. Um, and he wants to, he wants to write, he's write, he's written a paper and he wants to make a little presentation to all the theologians in hell about the, that passage from St. Paul, um, that we would grow into the full stature of Christ. He wants to give a little reflection on that. So he says to his friend in heaven these words, you know, Jesus, and here the ghost reverently bowed at the name of the Lord, was a young man when he died. He would have outgrown some of, his, some of his earlier views had he lived longer. And he should, during his life, have had a little more tact and patience. What a different Christianity we might have if only the founder had reached his full stature. This, of course, shows for the first time the pathetic nature of the crucifixion. What a disaster it was. What a tragic waste. So much promise cut so short. Just for what it's worth, a little tip. Like, if you're going to learn theology, don't learn it from an Anglican bishop in hell. Just saying, like, it's better sources out there. Um, here's the point. People want to dodge the cross. They want to dodge the atonement. They want to skip over it. They want to minimize it. They want to put it down. Um, but true Christianity does not pole vault over what Paul proclaims. It does not pole vault over the cross to get to resurrection and ascension. That's what Satan does. You remember the temptation narratives? It was all about Jesus. How about a little glory now? Don't die. Don't suffer. Don't bleed. No thorns for you. No nails for you. Just claim the kingdoms now. Skip right to the glory. Well, uh, Fitzsimmons Allison, my friend, former bishop of South Carolina, said, uh, Ethan, uh, the mark of a bad theologian is that they detest the odor of blood. They detest the odor of blood. Why would anybody hate the atonement or seek to minimize it? The answer is fairly obvious because it implicates all of us. It catches us all red-handed, and we don't like to be caught red-handed. We wish that we were better than we are, and we certainly want to portray ourselves as better than we are. And the cross catches us all in the act. It is, yes, a word of absolution, but it is first a word of accusation in which we are all condemned. And so being Lord for Jesus meant I will embrace disgrace. I will empty myself. I will humble myself even to death. But Paul doesn't stop there. Being Lord also means experiencing elevation, a supernatural elevation. This is what it says in verse 9. Please follow along. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So at the name of Jesus, there is a universal response. That's how powerful the name is. And notice uh, the, the word name is mentioned several times here. You may know that the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, was a sacred name. It was given to Moses at the burning bush. And, uh, and then that, that name literally means I am that I am. But by the time uh, the temple was established and the, the, the Christ arose, arose in his ministry, that name was understood to be so sacred it not, ought not to be pronounced by people. And so people stopped saying Yahweh. What they said instead is Hashem. 
that they're praying to Hashem. What does Hashem mean in Hebrew? The name. That's what they called God, the name. Because they were terrified to, you know, make putrid the name of God with their sinful lips. And so what's fascinating about this particular passage is that Paul says that Jesus' name, it's Jesus' name that is universally affecting and a name above every name. And at that name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that there will come a day when there is universal recognition of this man and who he is. And no one will be able to escape the facthood of it. No more denial. No more obfuscation. By the way, when Paul talks about every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, he's not making that language up. He's quoting a passage from an Old Testament book that is the book of Isaiah in chapter 45. And this is a little passage from Isaiah 45. And this is God speaking about God's own self. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return void. And this is the word that shall not return void. Quote, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue confess allegiance. Isaiah there is writing about God. God is saying at his word, everybody will recognize God. And here Paul is applying those same words to the one who was equal to God in the very form of God. He is yet again underscoring who this person is. And think about that. Think about that. The disgraced Jew, the one who was the slave, the slaughtered man, well, his name, the name of Jesus, meaning God saves us, the name Jesus is now equal to God's name. It dominates the market. He has no competitors, no Caesar, no governor, no president, no musician, no TikTok star. They are all, they are all at best temporary power holders that will soon fade uh, like the stars fade. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that everybody will be saved, but it does mean that everybody will acknowledge that's a certainty. And that's why, by the way, Jesus' followers on Palm Sunday were quite right to acknowledge him as the final authority. Jesus agrees with them. He agrees with what they're singing and shouting. And when people criticize them, the religious bureaucrats, what does he say to them? If my followers were quiet, gravel would scream. If my people shut up, creation would cry out. And so it's right that they're saying what they're saying. Did they misunderstand it? Yes, in some ways, probably many of them did. But the claim of Jesus' kingship is still right. They just didn't understand that the king would have to be disgraced. And so Jesus knew that. Jesus, there are two parts of Jesus' Palm Sunday brain and how he understood his authority. Elevation and disgrace. They both are a necessary, necessary components in the Messiah. Now, I want to ask, in conclusion, how does this text infiltrate us? Because it is, it is to affect us. Because Paul says at the very beginning of this passage, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who did this, these various things. How do these two ideas of elevation and disgrace reorient us, help us, medicate us? Well, I'll just explain that in, in, uh, in one moment. The, the true lordship of Christ that involves elevation is a very relieving word for us. Because, friends, 
If Jesus is Lord, no one else is. No one else is. He is higher than every other person, idea, or thing. And there are lots of people and things that wish to be our Lord. A lot of people out there want to be your Messiah, want to think of themselves as the final answer to your plight. You know, if you just gave yourself away to them a little more, everything would be okay. I think a lot of people want to be our Lord, whether it's Big Pharma or Twitter or uh, maybe an insecure parent who's always kind of lording their authority over you and hovering like a helicopter over you just to make sure that you're constantly monitored by a TSA agent slash parent. Or maybe uh, the Supreme Court, or maybe it's Xanax, or maybe it's Elon Musk. I don't know what he's up to. I don't know. Maybe it's good. I don't know. But, but lots of people like the idea of totality, of being your all. You know, I just went to this uh, event at Grove City College called Exhale, it was, a, um, it was an attempt to make the, the college aware, more aware of the sexual abuse of children and men and women. I'm not sure if you were able to go, but it was worth going to. There was beautiful music, some of it composed by students. There was art and poetry. And then there was, on public display, a large piece of paper with a question on top that said, what would you say to your abuser? And people responded in markers. They wrote what they would say to their abuser if they could. And some of those comments were angry, and some were sad, and some were forgiving. But all of the answers came from the heart. And I think what that event meant, at least in my mind, was this was, um, this was a way for people to cry out for a truer Lord. A truer Lord, you know? Because they wanted to speak truth to their abuser and essentially say, you've acted like you're the Lord, but you're not the Lord. You are not the Lord. You are not the Lord over my body. You are not the Lord over my emotional life. You're not the Lord over my psychology. You're not the Lord of my past. And you sure won't be the Lord over my future. Like what you did, what you did will not be the final word over my life. Because I've been given a dignity by somebody else that transcends the abuse of my past. They were essentially saying, you are not the Lord, and I am not the Lord, but there is a Lord to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And I thought that was extremely powerful because they began to realize that if Jesus is Lord, no one else is, and he dethrones anybody who opposes him. Um, and friends, I, I think it's really good news, actually, to have a Lord. I think it's very good news to have a boss when that boss happens to be Jesus. You know, Tim Keller said it. He said, Jesus is the only one who can rule us without destroying us. And so true lordship involves elevation. And that's a good word because it frees us from lesser pretend deities. But also true lordship involves disgrace. Disgrace. The New Testament message is not just about Jesus' resurrection. You know, after the fact, Jesus rose again. Now we can forget about the crucifixion. No, when Paul says to proclaim the gospel, it's both. You proclaim the discarded Christ as well as the risen Christ. Uh, we, uh, we proclaim he who died and rose again. Um, and, uh, and I think we need to hear about the disgraced Jesus. I think... I think we need that very desperately because what are we if not disgraced? If you have just a hint of self-awareness, you know about disgrace. At least you feel it. 
even if nobody has publicly disgraced you, you feel it inside that you don't really fit, you don't belong if people knew, you know. You wouldn't have friends if they really knew. Or may, or if your friends knew what you said about them when they weren't around, they wouldn't be, you know, you know, yeah. We know what it's like to be disgraced on the inside. We feel that disgrace. And we need to hear about a, a Messiah uh, who came for people like us. He bore it in his own body. By the way, that's my hope for this church, you know? Like from the beginning, my hope for this church was that we would know, and I mean like really know, not just have cognitive thoughts about it, but know fully and robustly that Jesus came for us in the midst of our disgrace before we decided to get better. And because he came for us as we are, as disgraced people, we can finally begin, slowly I know, but begin to stop all our camouflaging tactics and all our pretenses to act like we finally figured life out. We finally managed ourselves, which we have not. That's why you're here tonight, because you haven't pulled it off, you know. Neither has your rector, right? That's what I want. We can know the disgraced Messiah who came for our disgraces so we don't have to hide anymore. I've tried over the years from this pulpit and in other ways to be candid with you about my own problems, my own vexations, my own limitations. I have not done that to be showy. It's my way, maybe an imperfect way, but my way of also helping you to do it. Because if I, with all of my insecurities, can do it, then there's all the hope in the world for you. I've got all the problems that anybody's ever had, and some more than most. But that doesn't exempt me from the cross. doesn't exempt you from it either. This is what it's been all about for me. Uh, my job is to convince you that grace reaches further than you think it does, and that a disgraced Christ assumes more failure from you than you would assume from yourself. He expects it. And the reason that you are stainless and I am stainless is because of the royal blood that was spilt on our behalf. Well, that's what I have tried to do in the last 16 years. And maybe, maybe this is why at least some of you love me a, a little, you know, because I haven't tried to hurt you. And I, I don't want you to have to hide. I don't want you to feel ashamed. I don't want you to feel less than. I don't want you to feel awful at church and feel worse when you leave. I don't want to make your lives more painful than they already are. I want you to have a haven of grace where you can rest and be open and figure things out, not under duress and not under threat. And so I'm imperfect at this, but my quest is still to really love you as you are and not as I would have you. Well, that's the point. That's what I wanted to say tonight. That's true authority. And true authority, friends, is beautiful. True authority is good. True authority is nurturing and life-giving and healing and absolving. This is why Paul says that Jesus is the greatest. This is why Paul could say and maybe would say that Jesus is the boss of me. <laughs> because of his brand of authority and his royal blood. We, all of us, can join that Palm Sunday crowd and say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord.
Oh, man. 